1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a, a master's degree program I think you should check out. It's the Master's in New Arts Journalism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I'll tell you more about the program a little later in the show, but for now, here's what you need to know. It's two years in the amazing city of Chicago, and you're going to learn how to write about art and culture uh, from all these different vantage points. It's an incredible program. Uh, they have sponsored the show before. They are great folks over there. The application deadline is February 1st. For more information, go to saic.edu slash longform. That's ic.edu slash longform. Go get yourself two years in Chicago. Learn how to write about art and culture. What's better than that? Here's the show.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I am joined
1: by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, you guys. Hey, hey uh it's an exciting time in the world what a time to be alive <laughs> tell me more I, I don't want to talk about it uh who do you oh, have on the show oh, man. Oh,
3: uh, max i uh, play you got you had no
1: show coming out right
3: play oh the yeah show. Play uh
1: show. we have a new show it's out it came out yesterday and it's called uh surviving y2k headlong surviving y2k it's a uh, new show from dan taberski who's the guy who uh did missing richard simmons hey go get that it's free Podcast apps. Everywhere. First two episodes are out right now. So I
3: probably just put in Y2K. I bet you got it
1: there. Oh, yeah. Search Y2K. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, incredibly biased, but I believe it is good. Evan, who's on the show this week?
2: This week I talked to Beth Macy. Uh, if our listeners don't know Beth Macy, they're missing out. She has written three books, the most recent of which is called Dope Sick, and it's about the opioid epidemic. Uh, It's an incredibly uh, wide angle and then narrow angle view of that crisis. Um, She also wrote a book called Factory Man, which I think she's probably most famous for. That was her first book. And another called True Vine. And True Vine, because this comes up in the interview, I will tell you, is about a pair of brothers who in the early part of the 20th century were kidnapped. They're African-American albinos. They were kidnapped and sort of forced into service in various circuses it's a crazy crazy unbelievable story and how she dug it up is unbelievable before that she was a reporter at the Roanoke Times for many many years and her books kind of all arose out of her experience with and reporting on that region Um, and she was I've been trying to talk to her for a long time and I finally got the chance
3: I'm excited about this dope sick feels like uh, I haven't read it yet Uh, I look forward to reading it but it feels like uh, a lot a lot of people are covering this topic and uh, people are taking different approaches. This seems to be the one that, like, has really people have really uh, latched onto?
2: Yeah, for good reason.
1: I would just like to note that uh, e- you know Evan was finishing his own book. He was absent from the uh, podcast for some time, and he's really come back and he's just like checking names off his list. These are yeah. all people that Evan has hadn't wanted to have on the show for a long time. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And uh, his, your sabbatical, I feel like uh, you really like booked the hell out of your return.
3: Uh, back like, with a Re-energize. <laughs> if you want to, uh, it, hey, if you've been away on a sabbatical of some kind and you want to tell the world about it, start an email newsletter with Mailchimp they make it easy whether you have a few subscribers or a few million I think there's are there newsletters with a few million probably yeah oh definitely and yeah and uh, I believe they're mostly run on MailChimp I believe that I believe that is correct um, we have a newsletter uh, the long form newsletter
1: it's true it's uh, our pick of the week our favorite article of the week and then five more and we put the podcast in there. It's the easiest way to follow with, follow this uh, service. Yeah, you should subscribe. Go to uh, longform.org slash newsletter.
3: Uh, here's Evan with Beth Macy.
2: Beth Macy, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Evan.
2: <laughs> we were just starting to talk about, uh, this always happens, we, I start chatting with someone and then I'm like, wait, I want to talk about that when we start the actual <laughs> podcast. But you were talking a little bit about how exhausting talking about your book has been, this new book, Dope Sick, mm-hmm. because of the subject matter. And that was something that I, it's a, I don't know if it's the best place to start. But I mean, your book is both about addiction up close. It's about the opioid epidemic. But I also imagine everywhere you go, you now must hear stories. People must come to you with their stories. I'm curious how you process all that
4: yeah well I'm still figuring it out and I even feel guilty just saying that this book has weighed on me because all the grief I've felt is nothing compared to what these families have gone through right yeah and yet I go out and I talk about it and I you know I say how we got here as a country I say where the gaps in care are I give these examples of the gaps in care I try to leave people with a few hopeful things here's what you can do Mm mm-hmm But overall, it's still a very dark picture. You know, we lost 72,000 people last year, and the number's just going up. And then always at the end, during the signing, one of the first few people, like I was just in Boston last weekend, and this sweet guy reminded me of a firefighter. You know, he leaned over with his kind of chubby hands and handed me the book, and he said, what do you write in memory of Josh? And then he told me about his 24-year-old son, so he made his my son. And you hear that over and over, and you have to be present for them. And it's it sort of builds up, it accretes, and all these different stories leave me feeling sad. And um, there is some hope in the book, but it's still a pretty grim picture, and we've got a long way to go, and I don't know, I'm... Most people I know who work in journalism really care about the people they write about. And it, it takes a toll on you after a while. So I try to do things in between that aren't this. I read, I only read novels.
1: Oh, really?
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: I, I exercise every day. I go outside, try to go outside. There's a mountain in the middle of my city where I live in Virginia. And I hike up the mountain or ride my bike on the greenway. And i really, with this book, tried to take better care of myself.
2: Well, you, you mentioned where you live in Virginia. And I feel mm-hmm. like, I feel like to someone who was not familiar with your newspaper work, let's say, and just started with the books, which I think I probably put myself in that category where I I heard about Factory Man and then read Factory Man and I thought, oh my God. And then suddenly, boom, boom, the next two books came from my view, like very quickly. And it could sort of seem like out of nowhere, like these three books emerged. But then I feel like your biography is so wound up in where the books came from. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how you first got into journalism and sort of your origins, because I know you grew up, you know, poor in Ohio, and that Mm -hmm. that surfaces in different ways in the book. So what was the first thing that kind of led you into wanting to be a reporter?
4: So I'm the first person in my family to go to college, Mm -hmm. I was always a pretty good student, very active in sports and student council. I mean, I always had a lot of friends and all my friends were going to college. And I didn't think no one in my family had ever gone. And so I was lucky enough to graduate in 1982, a time when a promising poor kid could get a, not a full ride, but a full Pell Grant to pay for college. So we mm-hmm. were so bored that they actually gave me money over at, to pay for books at the end.
2: And we're not talking about student loan. We're talking about grant.
4: Yeah. Yeah, that I didn't have to pay back. And wow. then I worked three jobs all the way through, uh, mm-hmm. different work-study jobs. That was part of my financial aid package. And I just feel so lucky because I feel like if I had been born 15 years later, I wouldn't have had that opportunity to go to college because by then a Pell Grant wouldn't have paid for everything. And There was no way I was going unless I paid for everything. We had nothing to add to it. So I think I've always been drawn to stories of outsiders and underdogs because I am one of them. Mm-hmm. And, I and love- did you
2: really feel that way when you were... When you were that age, do you feel like an outsider, you know, when you got to college, let's say?
4: Mm, yeah, I felt like like a food stamp recipient in the Whole Foods line. I felt like that a lot. Even though I ha- always had good friends and I always did pretty well in school, um, but I've always been um, just attracted to stories of people that do the unexpected and win. It's like my favorite story I ever wrote in my whole career. Even including the books of this young woman who grew up in the projects in Roanoke, African-American. Mom was a single mom. I met her when she was 14 years old. She was a library page at the predominantly black uh, neighborhood library. And the librarian said, you need to watch out for this girl. She's going places. She's number one in her class. And so I kept up with her, you know, I just would check in with her every six months or so. And by the time she was a senior, I was there in this library that had practically raised her right this, Mm -hmm. like they had chipped in to send her to France with her a French club, because they knew she couldn't afford it putting dollars in a jar on the counter and she used to deliver books for old people when they were sick and couldn't get out and like this whole community just loved her and so they were there waiting for her to find out what college she got into and i was there when she checked her email at 5 p.m and she got into harvard (laughs) with a full ride and the whole place erupted and so like that kind of story of somebody overcoming all those odds and the community and the history, you know, there was an old man there who had been a civil rights leader. He was reading his newspaper because why would you buy the newspaper? You go to the library and read it for free. Yeah. He put it down and he wept. Wow. And that's the kind of story I love.
2: So how did you, I mean, getting the opportunity to, to tell that story that was when you're at the Roanoke times, mm-hmm. how did you end up as a reporter at the Roanoke times from getting the Pell Grants to go to college?
4: Um, I just started in college. I got like internships. I think my first internship was like at my hometown newspaper, which I had delivered as a kid. I was like the only paper girl in town. <laughs> that's why another... my website is called Intrepid Paper Girl <laughs> uh, because I was a paper girl. I that's... should explain that on the website. Everybody's like, paper girl.
2: <laughs> I just always assumed like you were a newspaper reporter and that's where it came from. Yeah. We had someone else on the podcast, Michael Barbaro, who's the host of The Daily, The New York Times. Oh, yeah, podcast. yeah. No, he well. delivered papers. Uh, when he grew up as well that was kind of his I think entry point. I learned
4: how to interview people by delivering papers I didn't know it was interviewing but like I would stop and talk to old people who were just bored and lonely and have like great conversations you know uh-huh. I think I learned how to talk to people by delivering the papers and then you know there's a certain thing you have to do when you have to collect the money And you have to learn how to like negotiate with people when you're like 11 or whatever. I mean, that's some reporting (laughs) skills too, right? Yeah. Negotiating. Door to door.
2: I mean, that's door knocking. Yeah. yeah. It was a
4: good experience. Being poor wasn't all bad.
2: (laughs) So you then, you worked at your hometown paper and then you, did you sort of like hop from paper to paper and then, and then land at the Roanoke Times?
4: Yeah. After college, I went and I worked at Columbus Monthly Magazine, just like a summer internship. And then they owned this group of suburban weeklies. And, man, that's some hard work. So I was covering school boards Mm -hmm. and uh, town councils and growth. There was a lot of growth in the suburbs of Dublin. I covered that. A lot of controversy and, you know, just sort of got my feet wet in that. And then I went to work at the Savannah, Savannah News Press, it was called at the time, in Georgia. And I wrote feature stories. And then I went to Roanoke to write feature stories. And I basically did that for 25 years. I was Mm -hmm. like, and then I, you know, I started doing a little freelancing.
2: And was there a point in there where, as your career developed at at the Roanoke Times, that you thought about hopping to a bigger market or a bigger paper and decided not to?
4: Yes. And, you know, I met my husband at a bar Uh. in 1989 uh, on Salem Avenue. And, um... He really loved Roanoke, and he had family there. And I quickly, like, latched onto his family there because they were just, like, great surrogate parents. And, and we just decided that was the place to raise kids, and it's been a great place to raise kids. So we made the conscious decision not to move and just dig in, you know. And then I was lucky in my 40s to get this really killer editor like she would send back and i I got to do the big projects because you know i'd been there a long time and i would really get to sink my teeth you know i had to do the grunt stuff too but every now and then i get to do at least two or three projects a year where i sometimes spend a whole year on a thing sometimes six months sometimes three sometimes just a week but i had this really tough editor who Like she would make me cry once per project. (laughs) One time she sent back, like she would always do her first edits in red pen and she put Zs in the margin to indicate boredom. It's brutal. Brutal. (laughs) But really good, right? Like, you know, to be in your 40s and have somebody kick your butt like that was, um, a real, I mean, she helped me with this book too. She's Mm. even though she wasn't, she's not my book editor anymore. She's still, we're really good friends and she helps me talk through, um, anxieties and structure issues. And, and I always just write down everything she says.
2: You mentioned earlier, sort of checking in with someone every six months. And I got the impression it was interesting because I was like reviewing all three books over the last week, Mm -hmm. uh, in anticipation of talking to you. And I noticed so many instances of that where you talk about the reporting process but you also talk about almost like being embedded in this community and kind of sticking with the same people all the time Yeah, is that something that you did very deliberately or that just sort of came naturally like once you'd written about someone or interviewed them that you just kind of stayed in touch with them or that you would actually say you know what uh, yeah. periodically i'm going to do this to make sure i I find all the stories these yeah. people have.
4: Well, the story about the girl from Harvard, Selena, I did that very intentionally. Like I'd write on my calendar every six months, go check in with Selena. Uh, like I just made it because I knew it was going to be a really good story because she was already number one in her class and she was being recruited by the Ivies at age 14. And I knew her mom was like the maintenance worker for the housing authority. I mean, yeah, I just knew it was a great story. So sometimes I d- you do that, You ha- you have like this creative flicker of an idea but then you have to do the grunt work of like checking in and in that case I would have when I would order a book from the library I'd have it sent to that library just so I would have to go there and pick up the library and just check in (laughs) with her and she wasn't always there but just sort of made myself do that but with the case of like all three books grew out of reporting I did for the Roanoke Times and in all three cases I didn't know I was going to be a book writer. I just kept in touch with people because I keep in touch with people because you get to know people really well. And it's just like the blessing of this job, you know? So, you know, Truevine grew out of a story I had written 25 years before, (laughs) tried to write, right? But she wouldn't let me do it. Yeah. And then...
2: That one, True Vine was amazing because I feel like almost every narrative nonfiction book you read at some level in the source notes or somewhere, it says like, you know, this is the product of three years or four years of work and this many interviews and that always comes up and that was when it said 20 it described the 25-year process of trying to get cooperation from Nancy the woman that was incredible to me
4: yeah and totally worth it though right so I mean my belly led me back to that because she was running the soul food restaurant and i wanted to do the story on her great uncles who had been kidnapped as children and enslaved in a circus sideshow and uh, their heroic mother who wins justice for them over the course of many years but she didn't want me to do it and then i i talked her mother actually who was peeling potatoes in the kitchen into letting me do a feature on the restaurant and then gradually i just kept going back to the restaurant on fridays which was ribs day because I loved the food. And then it was just the only place where I was the only white person. You know, there's very few places in Roanoke that are truly integrated. And I would go there and I would get story ideas. And then eventually said, she said, when Uncle Willie dies, I'll let you write about him. And that was in 01. He was 108. And then so I went back to her in 2013 and asked if I could turn that series with a bunch more reporting into a book, True Vine. And she made me wait five weeks before she called she said don't call me i'll call you (laughs) and it was november 11th and i wrote on my calendar because i wanted to check like i was like and a month later if she hasn't called i should call and then thanksgiving went by it was almost christmas and then on christmas morning she calls and she says i can do it she said i waited so i could give it to you as a gift Hey,
1: it's Max. I'm going to put Beth and Evan on hold for just a second. Tell you about some sponsors making the long-form podcast possible this week. First up, our friends at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, specifically their Master's in uh, New Arts Journalism program. It's an incredible program. We have mentioned it here on the show before. And the application is coming up. The deadline's February 1st, 2019. You should should go check it out. I think that if you are um, interested... In writing about art and culture, there's no better place to learn. You're going to spend two years in the beautiful city of Chicago, a city brimming with museums, galleries, working artists, unusual neighborhoods, music festivals, and vital histories. It's an interdisciplinary art school. So you can take courses way outside of the journalism program. Whatever you're curious about, you're going to be able to indulge that curiosity. And you're also going to learn some uh, technical skills all the adobe suite stuff you're going to build a publication on indesign you'll get to know photoshop html css you're gonna make your own website it's gonna look beautiful uh, and you can really do the whole multimedia landscape when you pitch a story it's not just interviewing the subject and writing it up you're also going to take compelling photos create a podcast anything you want to do anything you want to learn how to do you can do it at the school of the art institute of chicago the alumni have gone on to great jobs producing shows at vh1 uh, acted as art correspondents in Berlin, directed galleries and the program draws students from across the country and around the world, South Africa India, China, South Korea, Russia really it's, a, uh, it's an international program and uh, it's an incredible couple of years. If you want to learn more, go to saic.edu slash longform that's saic.edu slash longform the application deadline is February 1st take them up on it, go apply it, uh, it'd be a pretty fun couple of years You know what else is fun? Wearing a watch that looks great and also brings you joy because it is inspired by the happiest people on earth, the Danish. There's only one watch company that fits that description. It's our friends at Skagen. When you take a closer look, it's easy to see why Skagen's watches are so beautiful. The Danish culture, it focuses on what's meaningful being part of a community, making time for relationships, living in the moment, and Skagen's minimalist design reflects that less is more lifestyle. They've got men's and women's watches, jewelry, even smart watches in a variety of styles, and uh, they take those styles from their guiding principle. Good design for better living. I have a uh, Skagen watch, it's one of the smart watches. Here's the thing I like about it. it, works great, tells the time, you can do all these things, get your texts and emails and count your heart rate and all this cool stuff, but, you don't uh, look like a doofus because the watch looks great it doesn't look like you're wearing a computer on your wrist uh it looks like a watch if you want a watch that looks like a watch and makes you feel happy like the danish go to skagen that's s-k-a-g-e-n dot com and you're going to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for their emails again that's s-k-a-g-e-n dot com skagen thanks to them for supporting the show and now let's get back to beth and evan
2: And that story did that also run first in the Roanoke Times? Did, mm-hmm. You were doing a piece there, so that was not explicitly for a
4: book. At no, that time. I didn't write books. I was just yeah. a newspaper reporter. So that was at 01. I co-wrote that with a colleague, uh, Jen McCaffrey, and uh, it was like five-day serial narrative that ran on the front page of the paper.
2: It's an un, that's an unbelievable story. I mean, there are, all three of these books contain. I mean, the third one in a different way, but like these sort of extraordinary narratives. When did you decide that you wanted to write books or how did that come about? You'd been a reporter for a long time. You'd probably uncovered all sorts of stories that could have been books or you might have considered books. Was What was the moment when, you know, Factory Man sort of germinated into a
4: book? Yeah, I had just done the Neiman Fellowship at Harvard in mm-hmm. 2010, and I had studied long-term care, Giving, written a 10-part series that won a couple national awards, and that actually got me the fellowship. So then I studied long-term care at Harvard, and I went out with some agents, like went on meetings with agents to try to pitch a book about caregiving for the elderly, and nobody wanted it. And one agent, as she was so nicely rejecting me over this very nice lunch in downtown Boston, said, you know, but that story you told about so-and-so, that's a magazine piece, and that had never occurred to me. So I was like that's when I started thinking I could repackage some of these stories with some more reporting and turn them into something else. And then just the experience of being at Harvard with people who are working all over the world and uh, writing for bigger outlets than me, I was from by far from one of the the smallest outfits there. It just gave me the confidence so that when I got back, my editor, my smart tough Z's editor, said, you know, the last furniture plant in Southside, Virginia just closed, and they gave our business reporter really great access when he went down there to do a story on the... She said, I think there's more there. I think there's like a globally important story there. Her name's Carol Tarrant. You know, she said, "Yeah, they've had the highest unemployment rate for 12 years now. You know, food stamps tripled, disability was up. What's the aftermath story, and how are we all complicit in it?" Like she got right away that she, it was She saw the. She's so freaking end to smart. Uh-huh. Yeah, so she gave me the time, which is rare. You know, newspapers are like, you know, she let me go. Both of those areas, Galax and Henry County, we no longer have reporters covering anymore. So she let me go outside of our media coverage area. And the first time I went to visit John Bassett, I spent the whole day with him and I got a hotel in galax because it's like two hours away. And I knew I wanted to spend a couple days the first time. And I was, you know, usually you're exhausted after a full day of reporting, but Uh in and out of the factory, I'd talk to both of his sons, I'd talk to foremen, factory workers. John himself is exhausting. And he he is
2: the uh factory man, the eponymous main character of the book.
4: Yeah. And I was so excited. I went home and I typed up notes from the whole day. I just stayed in my hotel and I typed up all my notes and I sent them to her because I wanted her to see what I got. And she read them. It was like 10.30 at night and she emailed back. She said, holy crap, this is a great story. And then I knew she would give me time to uncover the complicated nature of it and he was just a character like out of Faulkner you couldn't make him up he said things like can I say a bad word on this yeah he says the fucking chai comms aren't gonna tell me how to make fun of you. <laughs> like talking about the Chinese communist yeah. like what who that's, says uh, that that's
2: straight out of uh Rush Limbaugh chai comms I, I know, know a Rush Limbaugh oh. occasional oh. listener is it yeah, like, that's I that's don't like don't think the I expression he I used for the he Chinese made that up.
4: Yeah, oh, yeah. Dear. oh dear oh dear oh dear <laughs> I should have known that anyway and he had done this thing that nobody else in his industry had done. Everybody else had closed. He had stayed open. And he'd fought China in a court of international trade. Yeah. And he had this family feud. You know, he'd had this horrible fight with his brother-in-law, which had got him kicked out of the family and the company. He was born to inherit Bassett Furniture. And I just thought, wow, I could not make this up. Yeah. And he was so colorful. Also very controlling right so that was the challenge in that book true vine i almost didn't have enough information factory i had man i had too much i had him calling me like five times a day some days trying to control what i did with it
2: and how did you like manage him
4: well every time you never knew when he was gonna call and every time he would call if i was at my desk i would just i don't know why but i would just write an email to myself With my email, and then uh, the subject line would be JB3 and the date. And then at the end, I would go up and I put a few keywords of what we had talked about because that's how often he called. And then I saved them all in a folder of JB3 phone calls. So one time, like call it the 28th time he called, and I did that. We were talking, and at the end, I sent it to him accidentally instead of to me. (laughs) But he knows I'm a reporter and I'm taking notes every time he calls. And so he calls me back, and I don't know that I've sent it to him. And he goes, He goes, listen, are you recording me when we talk? And I said, I said, I record you when we're in person, but when you call me, I'm usually just taking notes at the computer. He goes, because I just got an email from you, and you wrote down everything I said, even my dirty jokes. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I'm a reporter. And he goes, you have just made me, um, what was the word he used, something like, you've made me not trust you basically you by put writing me, everything you put me on guard. <laughs> he didn't realize i was doing that you know like because i didn't go whoa, whoa. uh but and i just had to stand up i mean we got a huge fight before the book came out he read a galley he just had a cow about things that like i didn't think you know writing yeah, like yeah. the people it's never what you think of they're gonna course. be worried about it's about something else yeah And we had a knockdown drag out. There was, like, no emotion I haven't experienced with this man. Like, he's been funny. He's been kind. He's been cruel. He's been everything. And we just had it out that day.
2: I, I, for some reason, in Googling around, I saw that he references it on their company website now. So he must be in the net, like, happy to have been portrayed. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, plus... Tom Hanks is going to play him. Like, that happens every day. Like, when the day that got announced, I called him and I said, because he knew it was maybe going to happen, I said, look, the the Tom Hanks company is going to, they've optioned the book. And he goes, just remember, the higher the monkey climbs up the tree, the more it shows its ass. Like, don't you go thinking you're all that, Missy. Well, Yeah, yeah.
2: How did you decide, and this is true, I think, with Dope Sick, too, like there's one thing you've got an incredible character in Factory Man, but you also expanded the scope very wide to, to really cover, you know, free trade and what happened and mm-hmm. the full context of it, which can get pretty broad. And how do you make choices about how wide to go and how to limit that and how to put it together? Like, how does that process happen for you?
4: Yeah, I guess... At the beginning, I knew I had this great kind of profile in the vein of Mountains Beyond Mountains. I actually referenced that book in the proposal. Mm. Tracy Kidder, I like the way he inserts himself into his reporting, but not too much. And Mm -hmm. he does it when it reflects his between him and the subject, Paul Farmer in that case. And I knew I wanted to write a book that I could hand to my mother She's a high school education, but always a great reader. And she lives in this dying factory town and used to be a factory worker, in fact. And she could understand why it looks the way it looks now. Because mm. that was what I I didn't understand. That's what I wanted to learn. So, like the luck of it was having a hero that's so interesting and colorful. But the work of it for me is I'm not a business reporter. I mean, that was really hard work. So I had to I knew I had to understand the other argument. So John Bassett is he's not anti-trade he's anti-trade without any rules mm-hmm. and he thinks you know the wto doesn't enforce the rules and you have to be you have to have a lot of money to file one of these millions and millions of dollars in legal fees just to say that government's cheating us even when you know it's true mm-hmm. it's only a wealthy person with a chip on their shoulder would even dare do
2: it <laughs> which he did he was exactly he was such a person
4: he was <laughs> so once i decided that then i knew the work for me was going to be like writing about the legal case writing well i'd never written a book before that was trying to figure out how to structure a book and i'm doing this i'm drawing a nine in the air because sort of begin in the it's the same thing i did in this book sort of begin in this moment of great change or great dramatic moment and then go back to the beginning eventually get back to that moment and then finish Mm -hmm. and um that was basically the number nine structure which john McPhee talks about in his new yorker piece i think it's called on structure which helped me a lot Hmm. but the business part was really the spinach for me i had to figure that out i had to read like the opposite i had to read the tom friedman stuff you know so who was totally off Uh, yeah the world is
2: flat yeah i mean you referenced that the world is flat yeah and i
4: sort of took a couple shots of friedman so i knew i knew i had to understand the argument i was fighting against and then i knew i wanted to leave like the little people the people who had lost their jobs like they deserved to have the final word
2: yeah i mean you've talked about uh sort of reporting from the bottom up yeah um and is that something that comes just naturally from your worldview or from sort of what you're taught as a newspaper reporter
4: i think it comes more naturally from my worldview i'm way more comfortable talking to the displaced workers or the former furniture workers or, you know, the sharecroppers in Truevine, the cooks, the maids. Uh, that's just who I'm comfortable with.
2: What did you expect when you handed off Factory Man to your editor and, you know, it wound its way through the, what I now know through writing my own book to be a very long process of getting to the actual printing of the book. Did yeah, you... A
4: year later. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Did you... What were your expectations? Hmm.
4: I was nervous that people were gonna figure out I wasn't a business writer and that I got the business wrong. So I sent it to like an economics professor and had him read it Mm. and I sent it to, I mean my friend Andrea Pitzer, who started Neiman Storyboard, she said, you know, you gotta find some readers, people who are experts in the field just to make sure you got the content right, you know. I talked to Annie Jacobson who had written books for my same editor and my editor had suggested because she was also a newspaper person first and she's the one that said, I footnote every sentence as I go, because at the end, when I have to come up with all those end notes, I know if I don't footnote it as I go, I'm going to forget where I got something. I yeah. got that. I still do that. And then at the very end, I turn them into end notes. But I prefer having them there on the page with me as I go. That's kind of boring housekeeping stuff, but I love no, that kind I love of that stuff. stuff. Yeah. If you don't know that, you're screwed. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, so I guess I was just nervous about reviews and being thought felt like a little bit of an imposter. And then I heard I was getting three reviews in the New York times and one of them was going to be in the business section. I was just like, Holy crap. That's gotta be a bad one. That's gotta be a like, they're going to find out like, I don't know the difference basically between a stock and a bond. They're going to find that out. Um, but it was a good review and I think people liked it because it was a different kind of story and, it was a book you could give your mom and she could understand and
2: it also feels like looking back now sort of post election and all of the like you know supposed efforts to sort of like understand parts of America that the media had you know overlooked or however you want to describe it that this was actually a book that started from there it started from sort of like what's happening in America and I, it made me curious if post 26 election You've been pulled into a more political place at all in terms of like you're the person who does understand uh aspects of those parts of America like free trade it's a it's like a trump signature issue,
4: yeah,
2: and you've written a book about it that wasn't really political in any way. it was no, just not about people that. I
4: mean the main characters are republican,
2: yeah and i'm I'm just wondering if you've been tempted to or pulled into sort of like commentating about yeah. that more.
4: Not so much in Factory Man because it came out in 14 before the election. I feel uncomfortable when people ask me those questions, but I feel like with Dope Sick because it is so current yeah. and it is just a much different time now that I'm almost being asked to be an activist. And I'm still figuring out how to do that. Like, Everyone wants to
2: know, what do we do?
4: What do we do? And you know, and I'm having to say like what I think about things and when I prefer showing, yeah. you know, I prefer showing over telling, but I have this presentation I give when I go out that sort of goes over the history of how we got here and the deep history of the epidemic of the late 19, uh, early 1900s. And then, you know, the introduction of Oxycontin and how that sort of seeded this epidemic and then how it turned into a heroin, a later fentanyl epidemic. And then I can't just leave people in despair. So then I, I felt like the only thing I could do is like, here are the things that are going to get us out of this. And so my last five slides in my presentation that I go out and give are things I think we should do. And that feels like, am I allowed to do that as a journalist? <laughs> I mean, what do you think? <laughs> well,
2: I, I could see that it must be overwhelming. The If you didn't do that, the response you would get from people would just be sort of like, okay, you've led me up to this point. Yeah. Now tell me yeah. what happens next. But I think there's probably differing views on sort of whether that's your job or not. Like I've interviewed Ta-Nehisi yeah. Coates several times and he's he's always sort of like, I don't want to be the person who tells people how to fix it. I'm a writer. I'm here to tell stories that yeah. illuminate things. and
4: Right. And, and those should be generative in themselves and that should be enough. Mm-hmm. And yet I feel like I would be slammed if I didn't show some things of hope or leave people in a puddle at the end. Hmm. I, feel, I don't know.
2: Hmm. Well, I mean, I do
4: get asked what I thought. I was just doing that interview with the congressman and C-SPAN and the drug czar office has asked me to come speak and I'm going to go talk to the people at Google and just like, "Ah, (laughs) I think I have some things to say. I mean, I definitely have some things to say, but is that my role? I, I don't know. I just weigh each one. I don't do all. I don't say yes to everything, but.
2: Well, how did you decide to again there's the there's a sort of scope issue in Dopesick where it could have just been a portrait of what this epidemic is doing to a certain part of america which it is but it also then you have the whole purdue pharma situation which is that really takes you to the global view of kind of how this happened and who is to whatever extent responsible for it happening and how it came about and did you know from the beginning that's what you wanted to do? Like when you said, this is the book I want to do, were you like, I'm going to do it all?
4: No. I was meeting with my agent in, what this would have been, 15. And I had five ideas for my third book. And I had actually suggested Heroin as my second book. Oh, really? Two years earlier to my editor and my agent. And they both like Heroin? That's a thing? <laughs> like, think about it. It's only been in a few years, even that though they really, Yeah, that uh. it's become every day in the news. And... Um, I think i just brought up heroin because i just finished the series i did for the roanoke times in 2012 i was still working at the paper then mm. when factory man was about to come out mm-hmm. and i had mentioned it and my agent actually said well heroin oh roanoke's just late getting heroin we had it here in the 90s like like, <laughs> like it was a trend thing and i was like i don't think so i just followed these two families and there's a whole bunch of people left behind yeah who were using drugs with them and it doesn't go away so anyways when i went back for third book and he says that one and i wasn't sure that was my favorite idea i was really worried i was going to get depressed working on it because i can do that yeah and but i went and did it and i went back so i had this these two families i've been following since 2012 not knowing i was going to write a book books and then my agent said well you know it all started with oxycontin well just did a three-part series on heroin i didn't actually know the connection between the oxycontin story and the heroin story even then until he said that and um so basically i took out the roanoke times reporter who covered oxycontin when it landed in the coal fields and followed that story all the way to 2007 when the company pled guilty in a in a southwest virginia federal court this one reporter he was really the first to write about it mm-hmm. um i took him out for coffee. And, and he said, call Art Van Z. He was the first doctor to stand up to Purdue. Call Sister Beth Davies. She's this activist nun. Call, he named the sheriff in Lee County. He named the first cop that ever saw it being diverted on the street. These are all people he had interviewed but a long time ago. Wow. He said, find the lady who shook the urn at the executives in 2007 at the sentencing hearing. Oh yeah, And that's so I a looked scene. her name up and I just, any her and got her. And she was She came to my book launch event two months ago with her urn of Randy's ashes. She's about 4 feet 10. She's in her 70s. And she brought her 10-year-old, who she adopted. He was an opioid orphan. I mean, just nobody goes back and says, how are people doing now? You know, in general, in journalism, we don't have that kind of time. And so Factory Man goes back, and so does Dope Sick. Like, that was my goal, to go back and say... These people have been dealing with the crisis longer than anyone in Appalachia and in a few other distressed areas of the community. But tell their story, and then at the end, how are they doing now? Because like that's where we're going to be in a few years if we don't get our arms around this. Mm-hmm. And how they're doing now is not well.
2: And you you appear in the book. I mean, you mentioned um, showing up, like Tracy Kidder style showing up in the book, which you do in really in all three of these mm-hmm. books. And in this one in particular... You actually discuss sort of grappling with the closeness with some of the subjects and subjects who are struggling to recover and need help and sometimes turn to you for help. And how did you go about sort of resolving those conflicts?
4: Yeah. Um, The Tracy Kidder thing, he's such a good example of that. But also he and his editor wrote a book called Good Prose. Have you Mm, read that? I
2: haven't read that, no.
4: I reread that as I was working on this, and as I was getting a handle on how to structure the book, you know, I had these three communities that I was reporting really deep from, the coalfields, Roanoke, and Hidden Valley, and then Woodstock, where the drug dealer story was, and then Chicken Plant, and I hadn't quite figured out how they worked together. I mean, they basically are narrative, right? Yeah. cotton, heroin, fentanyl, criminal justice, and... I was worried it had too many characters. Like I was really worried that the people couldn't remember who people were, or keep them in their minds. It was a more complex book than the other and more way more interviewing too. Mm. And one of the things in good prose they say is that when you have a story with complexity and lots of different moving parts it's better when you as the narrator appear more often, because in some ways you are the glue mm-hmm. of the three stories. And that really helped me. It sort of gave me permission to put myself in a little bit more maybe. And then I just tried to find people in each of those three areas, and I knew the only way I was going to like be able to stand to live in the material was to feature the people fighting back. You know, so Dr. Vanzi and Sister Beth and some of the moms and the Hope Initiative and then the ATF agent in the third section and the cops. And then I had a really great editor on this book who kind of took it apart, you know, ended up she's like, No, I I want chapter twelve to be the prologue, and then I want you to make the whole thing chronological. Oh wow. And I didn't think the reader would be able to keep up with that. I thought it needed to be three parts, three. Splitting them into
2: three separate parts.
4: Which they kinda are, except for now they go back and forth a little bit in the middle. And um but she was right. I think I think it works, but I couldn't tell, you know, at first, because you're so close to it.
2: So so then I wanted to get to the kind of emotional connection that you form also mm-hmm. with the subjects. Cause you're talking about subjects who, some of them, you know, without giving away, I guess, parts of the book, but like people pass away during the book. It's a book about mm-hmm. people who have like horrible addictions and mm-hmm. they're really, really struggling. And, you know, you said you were worried that you would get depressed. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering like, what kind of emotions did you go through in trying mm-hmm. to report that out?
4: Well, if you notice in the book, there's nowhere where I'm like with the user while they're using. Yeah. And that was kind of a conscious decision. If I'm focusing on, you know, find the helpers, as Mr. Rogers says, I'm writing about the people finding back. So the users are in there, but usually it's like Tess's mother, Patricia, that I get close to, especially after yeah. Tess goes to Nevada for treatment and her mother's back in Virginia. And I'm sort of following her through her mother. That was really hard. There was another guy. I don't even write about him in the book that I did an interview with in the coalfields, and he was a long-time pill abuser who was, quote, clean when I interviewed him, except for his wife, who was a nurse, said, you can do marijuana, because I know you can't do this without anything. And so she drug tested him every month, and she was okay if marijuana came back on And he said to me in an interview, which I just re-listened to again recently, he said, if she ever figures out she don't need me, I'm screwed. And then, like, four days later, I hear he's killed himself. He relapsed. She said she would leave him if he relapsed. He went into the woods and shot himself because he couldn't bear that she might leave him. And then you just hearing that, you know, the audio recording, and I took a picture of him. I was just, in the interview, I actually stopped and I said, jesse you are so smart he just had the sparkle about him he was a town maintenance uh, manager in big stone gap virginia and he knew all about the crisis and taught me a lot mm-hmm. and uh, i mean i only met him once but that was i mean things were shocking like that or you know Tess ends up the way she ends up that was really very hard. shocking yeah and did i ever think i was going to be with a mother in a funeral home in which funeral workers had spent two days to get her daughter's body prepared for her mother to say goodbye to her. I mean, I was there with her mother when she said goodbye to the body, and her grandfather was just the three of us. And, like, do you bring your notebook out then? I didn't. Yeah. Because I knew I wouldn't forget it. And I knew... That kind of writing, when you're writing about something that emotional, it just has to be very spare, right? With just the right details and kind of that was how the book ended.
2: And how much was there a lot of sort of back and forth about what you could or couldn't put in with people? Because I imagine people even agreeing or understanding at some level, you're there. I mean, it's kind of like the uh, factory man, like understanding, okay, I see you're writing about me, but not really Mm -hmm. getting it. In terms of how exposed in some ways they're mm-hmm. going to be, because mm-hmm. almost everyone's a real name in this book. Almost everyone. Yeah. yeah. There's
4: a few people who are on MAT at the end, mm-hmm. um, buprenorphine or Suboxone. Who, That's medically assisted treatment. Yeah. Who feel stigmatized and didn't want their names in and thought their job, their bosses might hold it against them. So mm-hmm. I didn't use their names or I changed their names, but I always said not her real name. But Patricia and Tess were just immediately open and I knew that was really rare because they'd already been struggling for so many years and had been, you know, falling through the cracks over and over, Tess had. And I knew that was a real window and so did Tess. Tess wanted to be a writer when she grew up. She was a published poet. She loved reading and she really wanted, she felt like she was really contributing. And in fact, one of my last, my next to last correspondence with her I had given a reading at Suey Books in Richmond, it's one of my favorite bookstores, and the owner there, Ward, has always been really supportive of my writing, and he said, why don't you read from your new book? And, you know, it wasn't even finished yet, but I read the new prologue, which mentions Tess in it, and I posted something on Facebook afterwards, I said, always love reading it, Chop Suey Books. Um, I got great questions and feedback from the readers about the prologue of the new book. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And Tess, I didn't even think, because I hadn't heard from her in like a month. She chimes in on Facebook, I helped make that book. I can't wait to read it. And like that was the next the last time I heard from her. And she was proud of it. She mm-hmm. wanted to help people understand how easy it was to fall through the cracks and hopefully move the public understanding and make people care more about it. Mm-hmm. But they're pretty rare, like to be that open. I had other yeah. people, like everything had to be negotiated, like... You can't say that happened in my clinic. And this is off the record. I mean, even the the prosecutor, the FUBI story, I couldn't get that on the record at first. He pulls out this chart of this eighty-four person heroin ring. And he tells me we just put all eighty-four of them away on state and federal charges. I say, Why does it say F U B I at the top? He goes, I'm not telling you that. So I went on, and he's telling me about somebody else lower on the chart, and I said, "Don, what's FUBI?" I go, "I'm not telling you that." So I thought, "What the hell? I'm gonna just guess what it is." Can I say this? Yeah. yeah. I go, "Fuck you, bitches," <laughs> and he laughed. And he goes, no. And he could not tell me then. And he goes, yeah, but this is off the record. And he tells me this story like he's interviewing some low-level dealer who's in jail for something else. He knows he's involved in this ring. And he says, look, if you don't tell me who you got your heroin from, I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring bigger charges. And the guy, his name's Keith Marshall, he goes, fuck you, bring it. (laughs) And so then they unofficially named the ring FUBI for fuck you, bring it. But it's so, such a
2: good moment in the book. I well, mean, it still still storytelling a,
4: It still standpoint. makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah. And that's when I decided I want to write about Ronnie Jones. Mm. That moment. Oh, like, really? So there's something about it. If it has the F word in it, I want to write about it, right? <laughs> the effing tricoms. So I was like, I got this story, but how do I get it on the record? Well, I know the ATF agent who was there in the room with them when he was having this exchange. I know his name. I haven't called him yet. But Don's already said he's going to call him and say I'm okay to in- interview him. I know the guy's name who said, if you bring it. He's in federal prison in North Carolina. And you can find people on the federal inmate locator. So I wrote the inmate a letter. He doesn't have anything but time. And he turns out he's a really smart guy. He had been a heroin user for 20 years, a tree trimmer. He was about oh, to- Oh, that go.
2: guy. That's right. That guy, Keith yeah.
4: Marshall. And he told me. So then I had it on the record from him. So then I felt fine about using it. Plus, I, ha- I got the ATF agent to uh, confirm that that's the way it went down. I'm not so sure were... what Don thinks about F-U-B-I being in the book, although <laughs> I saw him recently and he didn't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: that was one of the things I, I, I was fascinated by in the book, which is that you approach from all these different angles, including law enforcement, but it seems like you have empathy for every angle if that makes sense. Like there's a way to do a book like this. That's very sort of like uh, the war on drugs doesn't work and putting these people away is the wrong approach. And that is in there, but also the heroin ring is portrayed as having suddenly brought an incredible amount of heroin into this community that wasn't there before and grappling with that. Did you ever think about sort of like, what is my perspective on all this before you sat down to write it or does it just come out as you're writing, if that makes sense?
4: Honestly, I just tried to tell the truth. You know what I mean? I just tried to show it and I tried to show each person in their humanity, like the ATF agent who got him to say F U E I. There's a scene where he's showing me where they you know, it was almost like out of the wire. They're building this chart and they've got these pictures and these suspects. And he's showing me the the unmarked house where they basically posted up their drug task force. And he said, yeah, when I was working on this, my wife brought my daughter by and she said, is this where you live now, daddy? You know, so he struggled too. And the the drug court judge that won't allow MAT because his prosecutor won't let him. I watched his hair turn from salt and pepper to white in the course of a year and a half. I mean, he struggles. Do I agree with the way he's running his drug court? Do I think they should allow MAT? I do. I think he should figure out a way to get that prosecutor. But Again, I'm grappling with this. I'm now going out and saying drug courts should allow MAT, but Mm -hmm. am I going to call Judge Michael Moore out in that section of the book? I'm not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's wrong, but that's just not the way I want to do my journalism. And I mean, I'm not an activist. If I am, I'm a reluctant one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how different is all of this? I feel like you've been on this run since you started writing books where you've now written three bestsellers that all have gotten a lot of attention. And... I just how surreal is this vis-a-vis your career as a newspaper writer? Is it sort of like you envisioned this future or you, or is it kind of like this is all, I don't know, it seems big and overwhelming to me, but I've not been through it, so.
4: I mean, it's great. Like, I'm super grateful. I've got great editors, great publicity people, a little brown, you know, really fiery agent. Um it's a lot of pressure like doing interviews. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like not this. This is awesome. I love talking about craft, but like going on fresh air, like holy cow. Morning or, show,
2: like uh, TV morning shows. I saw you on like one of the yeah daily yeah, morning shows. Me
4: and Gail. <laughs> um, yeah, that's like, because you don't know what's going to happen, you know, in those. So that brings up anxiety girl in me. But the work itself is just exactly the same thing I was doing at the newspaper. It's yeah. just in a longer form. And, you know, Robert Caro I love his quote about time equals truth. Like the longer you have to work on something, you know, the more layered you can make it, the closer you are to the truth. I mean, you'll never get the exact truth, but you're working toward the truth always. And I always think time equals trust and trust equals truth. Because once people trust you, then they'll tell you really what's going on. Yeah. And so that... In some ways, I feel like I'm being able to tell deeper stories because I have this time really to invest in people and they to invest in me. I just try to be really transparent with them. Like the first time I met Tess and her mom, it was late 2015, they said, well, what's this going to be? And I, I hadn't even written the proposal yet. I said, well, I'm getting to write, ready to write my next book proposal on the heroin epidemic. I don't know if yet if you're going to be in it. I don't know what it is yet. I know I want to write about OxyContin. I didn't even know about FUBI yet. Uh, I'm just doing my early interviews, and I know if you let me spend time with you, I'll learn a lot about, you know, the challenges of dealing with this. And they said okay, and they never once wavered. I think one time her mom got a little nervous; she thought she was going to be judged. And I just, you know, I was just transparent as much as it could be all along the line.
2: Well, the time equals trust thing takes me back also to Truevine and the, and the 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a story that you tell in the book, it might be in the prologue or it's early in the book where you talk about a newspaper story that you did that got a lot of attention about teen pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can recount that story. Cause I thought it was fascinating the way that kind of folded into how you did the reporting on the book or what it made you think about.
4: Yeah. Um, Man, you you really remember stuff. He has no notes, people. I just want you to know this is all coming from his head. He has not one note. Um, so in 1993, Roanoke had the highest teen pregnancy rate in Virginia. And I was kind of a cub reporter then, believe it or not. And I was given this time to figure out why that was and what should be done about it. And I did this, I think it was a 10 or 12-part series that ran over the course of a year. And the second story ran when i was away at a writing colony working on a book proposal that no, went nowhere probably and i only say that because i didn't get to proof the pages which i normally do mm-hmm. and the headline was pregnant and proud and it was this picture of these 16 year old african american teenagers who were pregnant and they were best friends and one said i knew, this is the quote that everybody got mad about i knew if she was pregnant i wasn't i knew i'd have to be and they said getting pregnant was the best thing that they had ever done, and they had all this hope for their children. It was really a story about uh, social attitudes, about teen pregnancy. And I got pilloried. Like it went sort of national wrestling ball, talked about it. Mm. There were letters to the editor every day saying like everything from I was glamorizing teen pregnancy to I was being racist by focusing on these two African-American teenagers and it was very hard i was pregnant myself with my first it was high-risk pregnancy so it was like oh, it was stressful yeah, yeah
2: that's a lot going on
4: yeah and um finally somebody wrote in and said you would think beth macy personally pre- impregnated these young women in order to deal with a problem, first you have to be aware of it. Don't kill the messenger, basically. And so that was nice, finally, after 30 days of mean letters to the editor in a row. And anyways, it just became this big thing that I was known for. <laughs> She's the one that wrote the pregnant and proud story. And then the girls, like, ended up dropping out of school. And I just, that weighed on me. And I worried about him forever. And Nancy Saunders, the main character in Vine, the main contemporary character, I had followed that because she followed me because she was always reading my stories carefully to see if i was somebody she could trust Mm -hmm. and i don't remember what she said about that i mean she didn't think i got it wrong per se but i think it gave her some pause and when i went back to write about how those two girls were doing now was the last story i wrote for the runner times in 2014 one of them shannon Huff, lived right around the corner from nancy and it was just it's like, it's the power of staying in one place for 30 years, you know, that wow, what are the chances of that? What are the chances that I'm going to, um, you know, and that was another story. It took me years to talk her into going on the record with how the aftermath of that story had been for her and what had happened to her. Mm-hmm.
2: Because she, of the story in, in part?
4: Well, I thought, I felt, always felt really guilty about it. And I did a story on somebody else. He's a, somebody who helps people coming out of prison get jobs. Uh-huh. He had been in prison himself. He's named Anthony West. I did a story on him once, and I walked downtown with him as I was reporting on him one day. And I noticed he knew every person we walked by. Like, he knew more people in town than I did, which is kind of unusual, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because I've been there forever. And I was like, hey, we call him Aunt. Hey, Aunt West, do you know Shannon Huff? He goes, yeah, I know Shannon Huff. And I said, and I told him the story, and um, he goes, yeah, I can set you up with her. She's fine. And I said, Anthony, I've been feeling bad about that story. You know, the girls dropped out of school and the other person was in um, prison and had been in and out of prison her whole adult life. Hmm. But Shannon was doing really well. She was actually managing a Zaxby's. So Anthony got in touch with her. I went by Zaxby's. We set up a time. And then her life got complicated and she didn't want to do it. So that was like, I would touch base with her every six months or so, like I did with Selena." And then finally, it just ended up, it was just so random, but that was my last big story I did was a story on Shannon and the Pregnant Proud Update, which Mm. every reader in Roanoke remembered. And she was really proud of how far she had come. She said something like, it was the most refreshing quote. She, She was just like one of these great, she just spoke truth. She said, I've been through hell in gasoline drawers, and I'm proud of how far I've come. And she pulled out, at one point, she pulled out a yellow clipping of the story, Pregnant and Proud. And the article was missing. It was just a picture of her and Tasha, with Pregnant and Proud. And she said she carried around with her the whole time. I mean, she was in and out of jail. She had a really hard time before she kind of got on the path. And she said it reminded her that I mean, she was proud to have been in it. It was not at all what I was expecting. Wow. And it was very emotional. I interviewed her whole family and did the story about her and that was my last story for, for the run of time so, which was kind of cool well
2: then it, it kind of feeds into that book because one of the things that i thought was so fascinating about that book is i feel like a lot of it is about race and it's about the way african-americans were treated in over you know centuries in america basically but you very explicitly and i feel like this is rare you sort of step back and talk about being a white reporter reporting on these issues mm-hmm. and both trying to get people to trust you Mm -hmm. and how that came about. And I'm wondering if you felt that that was how integral that was to the book, having you sort of portray, this is who I am approaching the story, rather than that book could have been done as a pure narrative. I Mm -hmm. think without anyone, in it, someone might do it that way. Oh, yeah. But it seems like it would be ignoring that fact, that relationship.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and that's such an interesting or unusual story because Nancy also feels sort of outside of race. Like, she never felt like she... I don't want to put words into her mouth. But she sees racism in black people too because she was always considered different because of her uncles being... I mean, her first memories were of people banging on the door in the middle of the night demanding to see the savages that eat raw meat because they were people with albinism. And Nancy, very, very light-skinned. And... So with her, it's almost more the racism is just like this feeling of difference and how people with differentness are marginalized and racism, for sure, but also this added element of when you're an African-American albino, you're not accepted by either side. And um, we actually had this really intense event last february at the black history uh harrison museum of african-american culture in roanoke and it was the first event i had done in roanoke well my book launch was pretty much half and half black and white mm-hmm. and i went to the gospel choir had all this great food nancy was there a friend of mine who's a african-american who'd grown up with nancy and as a sociologist was kind of the mc but this was an event in which the question of do you have the right beth macy to be a white person telling the story came up And a woman, an African-American woman, uh, stood up and said, I did not have that right. And how dare I? Mm. And then Nancy, who was on the other side of the room, stood up and said, I helped with that book. I I had agency in that book. I gave her permission to do the book. And basically, I was a partner in it, in some ways, you know. Mm -hmm. I let her read a version of it for fact-checking purposes only, just the way I let John Bassett read an early version. And she was so much easier to deal with, let me just tell (laughs) you. And, you know, also we have a film deal now, and she's an equal partner. If I get 50 cents, she gets 50 cents. That only seems fair in a book about exploitation, right? And so Nancy stood up and said some of those things, and then the lady persisted, and Nancy got so mad, she walked out of the event. And then... (laughs)
2: Were you just sitting quietly in the middle, or did you? Yeah, I was
4: like, oh, it was really awkward. I didn't know what to do. Um, I mean, the woman was crying. She had been, she had been one of those people when the governor closed the school after Brown versus Board of Education. Some of the schools in Virginia closed. It was called massive resistance to integration, mm-hmm. and they opened white private academies. This woman was denied school for five years, and but she thought I had no right to tell that story, so. I've always come up, you know, started being a reporter in the mid-80s, and the idea was you had to reflect all of the community that you were covering such that if 25% of your population is African American, then 25% of your sources should be African American. Early in my career I had this editor that would literally send back a story. If it was a story about, say, a trend or something, you could just go out and interview anybody you wanted a quarter of the sources had to be African-American. And so one of the great things about my relationship with Nancy is I met her really early in that period, and um, she introduced me to a lot of people. So I would go back to the Goodie shop, her restaurant, and she would help me with that caregiving story I did for the elderly that won the Neiman Fellowship. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people I wrote about in that were people Nancy introduced me to. So it was just like, you know getting tentacles of trust and these pockets of trust. And uh, that's what I love about being reporters because you go out and you meet people that don't live in your zip code that seemingly have nothing in common with you. And of course, like everybody has, you have lots of things in common with each other. It's It's a great gift.
2: And I keep coming back to how, to me quickly, these three books, I just don't know if there's a run of like three narrative books that I've seen in this kind of succession. It makes me wonder do you now have a list of five other books that you're uh, running down or what, what happens after?
4: I don't know. I got nothing. I got, <laughs> I got no book ideas. I'm actually doing uh, a coda on this book that's probably going to be a podcast. So maybe oh. we can talk about that later. Oh. Um, the, the story of Tess at the end of the book. I'm mm. going to do some more reporting on that. And then it's been optioned to be a TV series. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be... Using... Are you going to work on that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, if it happens it's still early in that. Um, but I'm supposed to be one of the writers and I've never done that before. So I'm trying to just leave some space open for that. I'm open to ideas. If you have an idea, (laughs) Uh, I'd like to do something a little happy next time.
2: Do you feel like you're, I mean, all of your ideas have emerged out of being immersed in this community. I know. And do you feel that there, there's sort of an endless number there that eventually another one will bubble up?
4: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, they've all come out of reporting I did for the Roanoke Times, you know, and I I love that job, but it was, this is better, I'm better suited for the longer form, I think, and I'm a little worried that I'm not out reporting all the time now, right? Uh-huh. I am hearing stories, because, like, people are coming up and telling me stories, but I feel like this is such a big issue right now that I'm going to be talking, I'm having more requests to talk about it, so, but it does make me a little nervous that I don't have... Uh, another book idea when you grow up poor you never you always think like i said to my husband once i said "Well, what if i don't sell another book i'll be a bag lady again he goes beth you were never a bag lady <laughs> true story i was never a bag lady but there's something like you always say, oh I gotta i gotta do more i gotta do more
2: yeah well thank you so much for coming on the show
4: thank you for it's been wonderful to talk me. to you. I, I, I've I never seen anybody ask such great questions with no notes. So,
2: <laughs> I just love those books. They're they're stuck in my head. Aww. That's that's what happened. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Many, many thanks to Beth Macy for making time on a very busy schedule to come on the podcast. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our editor, Janelle Piper, our intern, Tyler McCloskey, and as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll
1: see you next week. Actually, uh, before we really let you go, it's Max again. And I just want to remind you, Go get a watch, Skagen, Skagen Skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Beautiful watches inspired by the people who have become known as the happiest folks on earth, the Danish. Danish culture focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, making time for relationships and living in the moment, and Skagen's minimalist design reflects that less is more lifestyle. Go get yourself a watch. Visit Skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for their emails, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. We'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it.